Welcome to Scores and Fours, a podcast where you learn about wine and classical music hosted by radio host Emily Reese and myself, sommelier Joe Mott. Today we're talking about local flair. So I'm going to talk about a couple of ensembles that we have, Grammy Award winning ones that are pretty great. And Jill? I'm going to talk about local flair in our cider scene. Mm. We're going to have our first collaboration and interview on Scores and Pours. Um, we're going to give Nate Waters of Keepsake Cidery a call and chat about the local cider scene, which is going to be great. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution for as little as $1 a month or as much as you want on our Patreon page. The website for that is patreon.com slash scoresandpours. We also post our playlist there and our wine list. And we would encourage you as well to direct message us on Instagram. Um, you could, there's a little button to message. And please ask us any questions. We've had some emails, and so that's a great way to get a question right to us so we can answer whether it's about things on specific shows or just questions in the classical music or wine or cider or beer or spirits realm. Welcome to Scores and Pours and our first collaborative interview here with our good friend Nate Waters from Keepsake Cidery. Hello, Nate. Hello. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. I wanted to jump right in and ask, so Nate, since 2014, has been making incredible cider down in Dundas, Minnesota, which is about, for those of you that know the Minneapolis area, it's about an hour south of Minneapolis, maybe 35 minutes if you drive like I do. And so, Nate, tell me why cider and why southern Minnesota? Because you could have gone to New York, you could have gone to the Pacific Northwest, so many good places for cider in this country. Right, yeah. I actually, um, we made that decision from New England. So we were in the Berkshire Mountains of Massachusetts, and I wanted to uh, grow apples and Tracy wanted to have a farm, um, and then I wanted to start a brewery on the farm and keep growing apples. And then one of my friends, uh, <laughs> looking back, um, I kind of embarrassed to say that I didn't think of it myself, was like, why don't you make cider? Um, <laughs> so you so you wanted you wanted to grow apples and make, like, when you say brewery, like beer. You wanted to make beer, beer right. on the, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, because I was working in breweries and I uh, really liked the, you know, kind of more farmhouse styles and towards the sours and, um, yeah, I just, but at the time I hadn't had a good cider. Uh, so then I tried a good cider and it just floored me. Um, I started realizing that I had never had cider before. Um, I had been drinking something totally different, um, and started exploring the world of, um, orchard based, uh, true to the fruit long age traditional ciders and after that there was no going back i fell in love with cider and um and it really came from that first thought of i want to grow apples uh and so that's where that's why i wanted to, to uh make cider is because i am passionate about the fruit and then why we chose southern minnesota uh it comes it came down to we wanted we although we loved it out east and that's definitely cider country uh, we were only miles away from Franklin Cider Days, which is the longest running cider festival in the country. Um, there's amazing uh, tradition there. Uh, there's amazing orchards there. But we wanted to be closer to family. Uh, my family's in Colorado. Tracy's family's in the Midwest. And when we were choosing a place to live, it kind of came down to, I realized, three things, which was um, dirt, water, and people. And we thought Minnesota... Uh, had the best of those three if we compared it to other places we're thinking about moving. So we came here and found a wonderful spot to live and we couldn't be happier. Well, that's awesome. Like, okay, so I get the people part. I mean, I'm one of them. <laughs> just kidding. Okay. And we get the, we, we get the, we get the water part. We got, we got the water, such good water here. But what about the, can you expand upon dirt? Mm -hmm. And as you do that, I'm, I'm looking at this bottle of wild medium and it's like, why haven't you opened me yet? <laughs> so I'm going to open that while you're talking to us about dirt. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, in some ways you could argue for cider, uh, reasons, our dirt is almost too good. Uh, the fertility here is incredible. Uh, we're lucky to live in a place of the world that 
arguably has the best soil in the world as far as, far as fertility and ability to grow uh, anything. Um, you know, that's why we have these gigantic old oak trees that surround our farm and maples and ash trees, um, basswood. These are this is great soil to be growing anything. So whether it be apple or it be uh, ragweed, which we grow a lot of that too, um, things grow really well in in our soil in this area of the world. Is it different than grapes where like, you know, people say like you want, obviously you need to have organic matter and you have to have hummus, but it's like you you have to have these really like crazy, not fertile soils for grapes to struggle. Is it a little bit different with apples in an orchard? I don't think so. I think that's, and that's the only, that's what I would say. You can almost say it's too good. Um, But that being said, I have a theory that I'll have to see if it bears out. You know, over the years, I'm hoping to be doing this for years, and you don't plant a bunch of apple trees for it's not a five-year plan; it's a 20-year, 40-year plan. Um, we'll see how it goes. I think that yes, there's probably some truth to the fact that you know, um, stressed grapes make better uh, wine, stressed apples. Um, but the reality is, there's enough stress in this world. Uh, <laughs> there's pests. There's weather problems. There's um, weed competition, and so. There's a lot of different variables that a, a grower, because I, I grow and I make the cider. So I'm a, and we also make some wines here. So we're growing the grapes, growing the apple, or, and we're also making the wine and making the cider. So I feel like that's an important perspective to have for me. And I'm not saying that for everybody else. But for me, I like to be a grower and a maker at the same time. It helps me. It informs how I make my ciders and wines. I think that if I, I'd rather have a good soil to start with, so I have a healthy plant that I can get going. Mm-hmm. And then... I'll, you know, I won't take out all. I'll let them. I'll let them compete with the weeds. I won't spray a lot, so they'll have some pest issues. I won't be over irrigating, so that they won't. They're not going to be gigantic apples and gigantic grapes for the grocery store, but they're going to have a lot of stress and pick up a lot of flavors. Um, that's my theory. Is that yes? I hear that you know, stress. You know, rocky, sandy soil makes for better grapes and wine. I don't know if that translates to apples. Some of the best, you know, ciders in the world come from fertile regions like Normandy and Herefordshire. Yeah. Um, so. You know what I have to say to stress? <laughs> I have to say this to Ruddy. That's what I have to say to stress. <laughs> okay, so t- tell me this. Tell me this. You are, as, a, as I'm about to pour this, it's it's true, right, that you, Keepsake Cider, both you and Tracy, you're making, creating, and selling the only natural, non-concentrate based, no added sulfur, no added effervescence, unless it's, of course, on tap, um, no added yeast, like nothing added, nothing taken away, cider in Minnesota, is that correct? Oh, uh, yeah, for the most part. We do have a few of our older um, runs that have pitched yeast and a few of our older ones where we injected CO2. Uh, okay. But now we've, we've switched over now to no yeast. We switched over in 2017, so now that's four years, uh, three years ago. And then we also now use the Shema method, so now even our, our medium-style ciders, yeah, the CO2 is a natural in-the-tank fermentation. But yeah, as far as all the other things you said, definitely that, that we know of on the on the market right now. How did you decide to go that route? Because, I mean, that's like a hard... You know, those are all really risky decisions to make and ones that, of course, you know, I'm having you on the show here. We're having you on because it, you know, you can tell in flavor it's a payoff. But, of course, there are like a hundred risks along the way when you decide to do that. So how did you decide that that was a way to go? Yeah, I think that's a, that's like a key question for uh, for any industry or any business. Um, why are you who you are in, in the you it comes down to personality, I think. I was just having a conversation with the wonderful guys over at Loon Liquor, which is the uh, organic distillery in Minnesota. And we talk about the difference between like making something kind of from intuition and from the gut as opposed to by a recipe. Um, and it's not as if either one of those is uh, the moral high ground. One is not right and another is wrong. Uh, you're not going to be you know, judged or go to hell for doing one or the other. But you do need to find what fits your personality. And for me, uh, the way we farm and, and the way we make cider, and in many ways, much of what I kind of my philosophy in life is I'm not looking for control. I'm not looking to try to just put my stamp on it. I'd rather just be part of something. Um, 
bigger than me. Uh, I like I like the fact that this cider, the cider is is very much in control. Like the blends, the way we make it, the where it ends up, really depends on how how it wants to go. Um, instead of me trying to put it into a box, and I'm not saying that I just like you know press apples and walk off and come back a year later and where's the bottle? <laughs> <laughs> but I like the fact that uh, that it has a say. Um, and, and the less that I put into it, the, the less that I cr- try to control it, whether it be through sulfur additions, acid additions, sugar additions, filtration, the less that I do, the more that I just let it be itself. To me, that's just my personality. That's what I want. I want to taste what the cider wants to be, as opposed to me trying to to put it into a box and make it what I want it to be. I, and again, I, I do make, we, we, there's a lot of attention that goes into that detail, into that in order to mitigate the risks that you're right, said, because you're totally right. It is incredibly risky to go this way because we are losing control and giving power. Um, so that means I don't have as much control over what yeast and bacteria are in there. As we like, we joke around here, you know, everybody's invited. So we started the cider and what, you know, people always ask me, what's in there? And I'm like, everybody's invited. I don't know. So there's there's bretomyces, there's all sorts of, you name it, there's going to be a particular yeast, there's going to be all sorts of types of yeast. Um, across the board because we didn't we everybody's there so that we lose control we take higher risk but um we find that when uh it works it works really well um and it makes something you know i think that is can't be replicated um and it has depth and character that that i i truly enjoy well, I agree with you because uh, when you say can't be replicated, because the reason that we're having you on the show is because, you know, granted, you know, I love you and Tracy as people, right? The ciders, I when I taste the ciders, I remember the first time I tasted your wild back in what, 2015 it was, 2014, something like that. Right. And it mm-hmm. was like, I remember thinking, I've had some of the best ciders that this country can produce, you know, some great stuff from the East Coast, some Aaron Burr stuff, some stuff from the, the West Coast. I've had, you know, some of the best stuff out of Normandy and, and Brittany, et cetera. And like these ciders compete with those ciders, you know, it's like, it's not only like, this is what I think is great in Minnesota. It's like, this is world-class Apple juice, fermented yeah. apple juice, right? And so, like, that's like it's just fantastic work. Can you tell us about what we're drinking? The wild medium. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I really appreciate that, Joe, because you coming from you, you are more knowledgeable than probably ninety nine percent of the people in uh, in this country on on beverages. So, thank you. I uh, appreciate that. This this wild medium is um, uh, exam- really for me is a good example of kind of our evolution. Uh, those early ciders were great. They're delicious, but I hope, you know, I, I know that one time I was at a, at a table with some uh, winemakers and older than me, um, and they said, well, what do you think about this blend? And I immediately started talking about the next year's blend that I was making instead of what hmm. I made. And then they were like, you're going to do fine. You are a true <laughs> winemaker. Like, you can't. And I, and I didn't even think about it. I was like, what do you mean? Oh, because, yeah, it's true. You're it's really difficult to talk about the old blends because um, I'm already like, well, it's hard for me not to be critical. Like, well, I think if we did this apple this way, if we aged it a little bit longer here, or if we mm-hmm. put it into a neutral barrel here. Um, but this is a good example of uh, kind of the evolution. Um, it's, it, right now, that cider is in our tank, bubbling up with the Charmant method. This year's wild medium. It's 100% organic apples, and heirloom apples. I'm telling you about that because... As I talk to you about this cider that you are drinking, <laughs> the whole time I'll be thinking I'll be thinking about that cider in the tank right now. Like, oh, but if I can only have them taste this one. Um, but but this is that's the evolution. Uh, this one has a way more heirloom apples um, than our first mediums had. Way more of the blends we're looking for, more earthiness um, to it that I really enjoy. A lot of stone fruit. I don't know if you're tasting, but I love getting a lot of. Um, that's what I look for in our medium cider. I love stone fruit um, and of, yeah, of course spontaneous fermented wild uh cider that uh yeah i definitely feel like it was one in a good one in a good direction we started using uh very certain apples by this time we when we made that blend that you're drinking we're really starting to get our heads around what apples in our region because we only use our apples in our region so we work with about 10 other orchards depending on the year and we were that was the year where i felt like we were really coming into our own after using as many apples as we possibly could I mean, we tried everything just to see you never know because no one had really gone through all the local apples and made sure that that uh they were or were not good in a cider 
Um, Because as you know, some apples contribute very well to a beautiful cider and some don't bring anything but acidity uh, and some don't bring much at all. So this is about the time with that wild medium where we started to pick out some apples in particular. We thought brought really nice stone fruit, a little bit of minerality, uh, again, some earthiness that I enjoy. Can you classify, like when you say medium on a, can you just explain that for folks? Like what does medium mean to you? Yeah. So in the larger picture, uh, cider generally is as of right now, and, it, and cider is a fun industry to be in in some ways because it's, it had this, it has this amazing history. I mean, it's a thousands and thousands of years old drink, but it faded out of American um, culture pretty much completely. Um, and then now it's resurging back in the last 15 to 20 years, but really we're still trying to figure out how to classify it. So typically, and my mentor is, are in Herefordshire, England, and they do the same. They typically will classify ciders by their sweetness level, right? So um, typically that means dry, which is zero or a little bit of sugar. Uh, I keep saying it means 100% zero sugar, residual sugars. Um, Off dry being a little bit more, um, usually not too much over a brick. And medium being uh, somewhere uh, as far as bricks level goes from the like two to um, four bricks. Okay. So like with wine, dry, I think is like zero to, I'm trying to remember back to like the Sumley exam days, but it's like zero to six grams per liter of residual. And then off dry is like six to 15. And then you kind of go from there. Is it similar where it's like, you know, the medium is kind of like that third step, like the right after off dry where it's still got, it's got some sweetness, but it's not like a, full-on sweet cider correct exactly okay. so and so to put it into that perspective like and we tend to be on the dry side so our medium you know it's still pretty low it's i believe that one is at like uh, almost four grams i was gonna of, say like right. this this i would be categorizing it as like a if it were a wine and i it didn't have any esters you know if i only had the the structural components of the palate like this would be like just like it's it's trying to stick its nose out at the photo finish to off dry, but it's still <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like definitely people that like dry or that like off dry would love this cider. Yeah. Okay. So we 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 have a, a we have a funny story about the, we we tend to be on the dry side. We not tend we are on the dry side of everything, and I, I'll never forget one of our you know in this day and age everybody's a critic, which is good and bad. Um, but we get tons of <laughs> online critique. Uh, of people, you know, sending in their uh, four stars or two stars or whatever. But our favorite, I think my favorite, I should say, as a cider maker, my favorite critique we ever got was, I think it was on Google or something, but it was, you know, two or three stars, which is low. But then it was like, oh, this place, these ciders are way too dry. And I was like, <laughs> I want to send them a thank you letter and like a gift certificate to a sweet cidery. Um, <laughs> You know, you can't get better marketing than that because everybody, and I know many people have read that and been like, oh, great. We, people are looking for drier ciders. And you're right, Jill, that medium for some companies would be considered off dry. But we, we call it medium because if you have it at our place, if you have it in the context of a cider tasting out, uh, out and about, um, it'll taste like an off dry. But if you have it here at the, at the shop, lined up against our other ciders, because they're so dry, it has that, you know, that comparatively more sugar. So it's in our lineup, it just gets the medium. Can you tell us about the apples in this medium cider? Do you remember what types of apples are in it? Did you grab, is it the, um, is it the 750 or the 500 milliliter? It's the 750 with the new label. Yeah. Okay. Um, the 750, that one's going to have, uh, that's, a, that, that's what I thought when I was describing earlier. So I want to make sure because that one in particular is exactly the, what I was saying. It's those Minnesota apples that we realized um, your chestnuts, sweet 16, not as many chestnut, but sweet 16, um, Cortland, uh, Keepsake, uh, these apples, Connell Red, that will bring in more like the. We, we always want our medium to be very fruit forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want it, but we don't. But we're trying to get away from like, as you know, our wild, our dry, uh, the, the wild dry or the wood age one in particular. It's going to be more like citrus and um, pineapple and sour fruit, sour tropical fruit. Uh-huh. This one, we wanted to go more towards stone fruit and pear. I think that one has a lot of pear, if I remember right. I haven't had that in a little bit. 
Yeah, it does. It definitely does. It's like very, these beautiful, like kind of ripe, like not bruised in a bad way, but like these beautiful, like rich fruit flavors for sure. Stone fruit flavors. Yeah. And that we do want that. We are trying to go for something like that bruised, almost like orchard floor fruits, a little bit on the fermented side. Cause oftentimes people's mediums or semi dries or sweet ciders, semi sweet ciders will be really juicy. And we're trying to get away from that and get more to the fermented qualities of the fruit. So I really don't mind if it's, yeah, it's a bruised kind of fermenting fruit in the orchard. Um, but yeah, stone fruit pears. And that's, we're using, we're still using, um, there's not any cider specific fruit in that blend. Like I said, that's kind of the evolution towards like right now, what we have in the tank has got some, you know, some pretty serious heirlooms. We were still kind of we're still kind of making our way to that that cider, and that one was when we first started realizing, wow, these are really cool Minnesota apples, some of the Minnesota bread apples that make really nice medium ciders, fruit for medium ciders, um, and so that that would be kind of the I'm trying to remember if there's any other weird ones in there, but that's that was kind of the mainstay of the some some honey gold is in that one too, um, just apples that have a lot of nice fruit qualities. Got you. Got you. Well, Emily, I feel like I'm monopolizing the microphone here. Do you have any <laughs> questions for Nate? Yeah. I mean, just as an outsider, um, no, hilarious outsider. Haha. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> when I was in grad school, which is about a little more than 10 years ago now, I went through this huge cider phase and found kind of what you were saying. I really loved super dry cider and I didn't even know what that meant, but I know that's what I liked. And it was impossible to find because so many of the brand names then, especially, I think it's much better now, but then it was just impossible to find something that wasn't super sugary and and annoying. And so I, I've fallen in love with years from first sip for for that reason. But Nate, I, I just want to know where you learned how to, I mean, you, you've alluded that you were in Herefordshire to learn, and I just want to know a little bit more about that. If we could just, like, what are the kinds of things that you learned and what did you experience as you were learning? It's a funny story. I so I came at it from the first time I went made cider. You know, this is now pushing 10 plus years ago. Um, I came at it, I went to the homebrew shop. I'm a brewer, home brewer. I'm working at these breweries. I'm going to, you know, tackle it like a brew. Uh, and those um, woke chasing it up at two in the morning in a winter night in East Hampton, Massachusetts, exploding all over our kitchen. <laughs> um, Okay. And so, so then I was like, this is, I'm never making cider again. But then in between then and now, you know, that friend of mine poured me a glass of, you know, proper cider, as they call it in England. And I fell in love with it again and went back at it. But this time that was my first lesson. Don't approach it like a beer. This is <laughs> a fruit. This is wine. This is, uh, approach it differently. So then it was uh, a real scramble for how do you learn. Um, at the time there wasn't very many ciders uh, there weren't many cideries in this region. Um, I had a, f- a family, started a family. I wasn't able to just take off and you know put a uh, you know do a apprenticeship somewhere. Uh, so I started uh, making my uh, making a cider. I made a cider with uh, 100% wild apples harvested in at my uh, family's uh, Chase's family's property in Iowa, um, and it was not too bad. Um, and then I just started drinking a lot of ciders. That's you know, just anything I get my hand on from anywhere, especially. Um, old world stuff, um, just trying to figure out like Spanish, French, and English cider. Um, and I went down to South Lindale, and I'm pretty sure it was probably PJ or someone just said mm-hmm. you should try try Tom Oliver's cider. Um, I poured myself a glass of his medium bottle conditioned cider, and um, although I'm a social person, I tend to be pretty shy. I that shines from out the window. I immediately contacted him. Um, and asked him like, as you know, please help. Just like any questions I could get, and um, and I think that is a real interesting reflection on the cider industry. That in order for me to find someone to mention me in this style of cider, you know, uh, I had to go all the way, and he and he had to go all the way across the pond. And he has been the most responsive of anybody I've ever worked with. He's an incredible cider maker, arguably the best cider maker in the world. I think he is. Which is super cool that he like took the time yeah. and still takes the time to like email back and forth. He received you and your family. Like that's so awesome that this. Oh, it's you know it's this, shocking. That's great. <laughs> that's all. That's all there's to it. It's shocking that he has that much kindness, and it has it's it's it's, it's a few reasons why. And so I I, I I even talked about going over there and working for him for free 
Uh, but just with the family and everything and me starting this apple farm, I just couldn't take off. So he just mentored us over the emails and then we started meeting. We meet, uh, try to meet every year here in the U S for a little while, just for a day or so, just to chat when he comes over. Cause he's a pretty, you know, he's a big draw and he comes over for the conferences and the classes. Uh, and then I've gone over there, um, just hung out with him for a day with the family and just seen his operation. And he has helped me in so many ways, so many different questions. I mean, just anytime I had a question, he would answer just long, long emails with, um, really great email, uh, uh, insight and if I was having trouble with things, especially because then we decided we wanted, you know, he, he's a big influence on me why we went wild. Um, to be honest with you, it's, it's a big reason why I went wild is one is it's my personality, but I, I, I didn't know about it until two things happened. And one of them is Tom Oliver. And the other person is, is, is here with us today. Um, Jill had introduced, uh, my business partner at the time, Jim to, uh, natural wines and a book in particular, that we he brought over and i was just like why are we not doing this tom's doing it we you know we have been doing it from the get-go just trying practicing it but like why don't we just go for it um and so it was a long learning process but it was it was because of people like jill and tom and jim and uh, I, I took a very intense course taught by a man named peter mitchell um it was just all sorts of different people that that uh contributed to to helping me learn. And then at the end of the day, I, I have to say my be- the best teachers have been just the apples. You know, I just immediately started making ciders and um, making a lot of different types of cider and different apples. And um, so that's why I definitely, I don't know if it's kind of a long answer to the question, but I, I feel very grateful for everybody that's taught me um, and contributed to me learning a cider. Um, and I hope I can do the same for people and I try my best to um, but I also have to give a lot of the credit to the fruit and to the farm and that uh, it's a very much a work in progress. I, I don't feel like I'm a cider maker yet. I feel like I'm still an apprentice. Well, when you, yeah, when you mentioned it's like a, a lifelong, you know, it's taken a long time to learn and then you're saying you're still an apprentice. I feel like, you know, I'm in that same boat just tasting wine, right? I mean, we're just always learning. I think anybody that knows that, whatever it is, the fruit has gotten the best of it, we'll say, especially if it has alcohol. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> yeah. We're kind of like, um, and even when I think about it, I've been uh, texting or emailing this guy who roasts coffee here in town about why is his Ethiopia flat. I'm like, you know, I've been <laughs> brewing it all these different ways and I've been like, you know, I've been reducing my grind size and all this blah, 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 right? I won't go into detail, but like, the minute you decide that when you sip something it matters, then I think <laughs> if it has gets a hold of you, that's like a lifelong, a lifelong endeavor for sure. Okay, so a quick change of topic, Nate. Oh, are you what? What's your favorite kind of music? Ah, uh, I am a um, big time music head. Love music of all types, but right now, so that's, that's why I'm, I'm qualifying that because it changes. Um, right now what I'm listening to the most, uh, is kind of a weird combination. I'm listening to a lot of hip hop and then I also, it's kind of, it's going to sound weird, but also, um, in particular, like, um, so I don't know what you'd call it, like indie folk women singer songwriters, like, like the boy genius and Phoebe Bridges and, um, I love that, that kind of crew. And then a lot of like, uh, and then that my playlist will go, and then a little bit like Alt J, sort of like you know stuff, and then uh, my playlist have been those two, and then like a mixture of um, some newer hip hop like Earth Earth Gangs. Um, I really like Run the Jewels album this year, um, but then some some older stuff too, some older Jay Z and outcast um <laughs> well for, knowing that you knowing that you're in a hip-hop phase i'll forward you right now i'm into this uh slovenian hip-hop artist his, i think his name is you pronounce it like uliche and i'll afford it to you it's pretty it's pretty awesome. like it's pretty great and like somewhat unexpected are you a classical music listener yeah i am i um i am horrible at remembering names um what i tend to find myself really liking is um string heavy especially yeah definitely string heavy um eastern european composers okay for some weird reason i don't know why um but i love i love uh when i'm doing deliveries i'll switch it around the radio stations and i'll listen to i've got the you know classic station on the uh whatever it's called the 
buttons I can just hit right away. Oh, nice. 99.5 or whatever, our classical yeah, station here. 99.5, and, um, and I, I always check in on it. If it's some, I love, like, uh, and you'd have to help me with this, and, like, I, I figure out, like, what I, who it is I like. Yeah. It kind of sounds, it's funny as I talk about this, and it's really appropriate, actually, to, to this podcast, is I, I remember when I first started getting into wine and cider, I just knew I liked certain things. And it wasn't until I started talking to people that like knew wine and I was like, okay, here's what I like. And they're like, oh, that's why you, you like wine. For example, I really like wines from Loire Valley. Like, oh, that's why. Because it's these flavor profile mm. that you like. So I should do the same thing with classical music. But yeah. if there's ever like a, like a really dark and sort of emotional um, composition done with majority of strings, yeah. uh, I'm usually a fan. We'll pass you a playlist, Nate. Yeah, please do, because then I can start figuring out who it is I, who it is I'm listening to. And I, I remember one time I listened to this uh, really beautiful song, and then the DJ like was like, "Oh, that was great." And then the next, I moved like, "No, no, who was that?" <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hear that sometimes they like they'll wait for like their midday or their mid hour session to be like, "Yeah," and we just heard them, 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 them. Yeah. They're like, "Well, who was that?" <laughs> yeah. I hear that. Well, yeah. I know that it's getting to be, we're recording here in mid-September here in Minneapolis, this episode, and so I know you're getting to the point where obviously you're busy all year round, but I wanted to thank you for taking so much time on a busy Tuesday to to chat with Emily and I today, Nate. I appreciate uh, it. Well, I really appreciate it. I love uh, chatting with you anytime. You, you are both wonderful people, and this is a great podcast, and I'm happy that I can be a part of it. That interview with Nate was dope. It was great. I love that guy. It's a beautiful property. If you live anywhere near that area, I recommend you go. They make delicious sandwiches. There's like a whole situation there. You can have a whole day there. You can walk the orchard. You can eat the yum delicious food, and you can try all the ciders. I love that place. It's a special spot. So what do we? What local flair? How are we gonna flare up the music scene here? Well, when you said you wanted to do an episode on local stuff, there there are angles to take because we do have some very fine composers from here or who've who've made um, Minnesota their home. But we also have two of the best uh, classical music ensembles in the world, and that that's just by no means any kind of overstatement. They're fantastic groups. Uh, they've both recently won Grammys, which is fantastic, and. Uh, those are, uh, if if you're unfamiliar with the area, here in the Twin Cities, we have two cities. There's Minneapolis on one side of the Mississippi River, and there's St. Paul on the other side. And rarely do the tw- do they meet. <laughs> like, they just, people stay in their side <laughs> a lot of times around here. But I don't, but I hear, I know what she means. <laughs> yeah. It's when a, people are like, I, when I'm, I asked some friends actually the other day, I was like, so how long has it been since you've been to, now granted, it's COVID times, right? So people yeah. aren't going around as much as they used to. But I was like, you know, before COVID started, how long had it been since you've gone and done something in St. Paul? And they were like, gosh, that's so far away. And I'm like, it's 10 minutes away. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like literally, it depends I can on where you live in Minneapolis. House. But it, yeah, yeah, it's like anywhere from if you're on the main thoroughfare that is Highway 94 or Interstate 94, it's like not in rush hour, like 10 minutes. Yeah, you don't stop. There's no stopping either. I mean, they're just, they just run. The, the only thing between us is river in most places. So it's, it's very close. So gonna, <laughs> it's not far away at all. It sounds British or something. Are we going to SPCO first? Is um, that the sure, idea? Yeah. So okay. the SPCO is the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. And a chamber orchestra is much smaller than a symphony orchestra. So whereas the Minnesota Orchestra could at one time have more than 100 people on stage, you would never see that at a chamber orchestra concert. Or if you did, it would just be weird. Um, You know, as far as full-time, full-time musicians go for the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, I think it's less than 30. And uh, it is a bit unique that they do have full-time employees, as it were, full-time musicians. Many chamber orchestras are just part-time endeavors. And if SPCO, as they're doing a piece that requires more musicians, they'll just hire more musicians. I mean, this is what all orchestras do. Even Minnesota Orchestra, you know, if they do have 100 musicians on stage, all of those people aren't full-time Minnesota Orchestra musicians. So, you know, they adjust as necessary and hire other musicians around town to fill out whatever they might need. Um, I just... I just love the I, first of all I love both groups so much I could never choose like I I 
seriously do not favor one over the other. I think they're both so special and so talented in their own ways and have strengths and uh, and where have, they play they're both beautiful beautiful they're just great, great. acoustics yeah. yeah and so St. Paul Chamber Orchestra plays at Ordway Hall which of course is downtown St. Paul beautiful performance space that's recently been renovated and they got a recital space there now too and they play over a hundred and 30 some concerts a year which let's figure that out that's I mean like, not COVID times obviously of course, but yeah. yeah but that's like two to three concerts a week like these yeah. guys are busy. They're super busy and they do tons of educational outreach as well. So, you know, 130 concerts is going to encompass every single performance they do, which not all their musicians are going to be a part of. So, you know, some of those might be playing at schools. They uh, often uh, do ser- – they'll play in churches. They're a lot more mobile because they're tinier. So they can zoom around the Twin Cities and, and play in different venues, not just at Ordway Hall. So um, that's really fun to to get to hear them. And, of course, all over the state too. Now, Minnesota Orchestra travels as well. Uh, and they all do very similar things in terms of education initiatives. And the last time I was at um, SPCO, it was maybe around this time last year. And I was thinking to myself, like, I always get a drink at the little intermission or whatever. Okay. And, you know, sometimes I'll get a gin and tonic. Sometimes I'll get, you know, that's pretty much all I get because the wine is terrible. And, you know, who needs a friend of mine always gets two shots of whiskey. And she gets like a double on ice or something. I'm like, geez, you know, Jesus, what are you doing during? She just wants to get to the end. I guess so. Um, I always am like, the last time I was at SPCO, which hopefully, you know, we're going to tag them. Hopefully they hear this. I'm always like, why don't we do a wine and like some sort of ensemble like pairing? And how much would I love to just pour myself some keepsake while I'm listening (laughs) to something amazing in that incredibly renovated space? So because I'm not in that space now, I'm just going to pour myself more now. Yeah. That's okay. As you were, sorry, as you were saying, because there is, I feel like a drink ritual, right? And sometimes I'll get coffee. The coffee's not good. I've gotten tea. I just almost never buy drinks at intermission the d- the tea is sometimes it's a thing i just like to like be drinking things you know what though? so sometimes i like get like a little black tea like yeah. on a sunday and like midday so it's like 3 p.m and like a little hot tea in the fall and it tastes so good <laughs> but like i'd really rather be just drinking keepsake cider or something of the like you yeah know? okay as you you looked at me funny though well just because <laughs> we're talking about drinks in svco come on <laughs> So they uh, most uh, just have won a Grammy in the last uh, few years for, uh, in 2018, they won for a recording they made actually of a this very famous string quartet that got arranged for orchestra. And so huge props to SPCO for that. That's a huge honor. Whatever you may think about the Grammys or not, it's amazing that St. Paul Chamber Orchestra won one. Yeah. Uh, and St. Paul Chamber Orchestra has also a unique model Many, okay, not many, there are chamber orchestras that don't have conductors because the group is so small, the concertmaster or the first violinist, same one and the same concertmaster is the first chair violinist, can conduct or maybe they'll have a keyboard player with them that's conducting or something along those lines. St. Paul Chamber Orchestra has what they call artistic partners. So they don't have a music director who's the one person making the bulk of the music decisions for the ensemble. There is a lot of feedback from the orchestra members themselves working with these artistic partners, some of whom are more known as soloists, um, like pianist Jeremy Denk is an artistic partner right now. Um, Some of them are uh, conductors. Uh, That's so, awesome that they mm-hmm. kind of just have that fresh blood coming in. Yep, and they have multiple at a time, too. So it's not just one artistic partner for a given number of years. It's like they'll have five at a time or however many they choose to have at a time. I mean, Bobby McFerrin has been an artist- artistic collaborator with St. Paul Chamber Orchestra in the past, too. So they really try and go deep. Um, right now they have a conductor who's very versed in the Baroque era. And, you know, Baroque music works really well with a chamber orchestra because it's a smaller ensemble, right? Mm -hmm. Which is in the Baroque era, they had smaller orchestras than you saw in the Romantic era. Yeah. So let's go ahead and listen. Um, I could say a thousand more things. I'll save it for after we listen to this really great recording of a piece by a Czech composer named Martin New. St. Paul Chamber Orchestra 
they perform a lot of 20th century music and new music as well. Martin New, a uh, 20th century composer, he was born in 1890, lived till 1959. And in 1950, he wrote a piece for a musical arts collective in La Jolla, California. And so this piece is called Sinfonietta La Jolla, and it's a really great piece played here by the uh, St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. And I do have to say, like, I I like when I'm tasting the keepsake and I'm listening to this orchestra and they just, it tastes good together, it sounds good. Like, this is our state, you know, this is awesome. Yes. So St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, another thing I love about the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra is their accessibility, and that runs the gamut. I mean accessibility online in terms of you can go online right now and listen to any St. Paul Chamber Orchestra recording you want, whether it's been released or not. They have an archive that you can just go through and listen to, which is amazing. So, you know, you could be like, well, I can do that on Spotify. Well, you can to a certain extent, but you can find the rest of it on their website. You know what I mean? So that's that's amazing. They're very open about that. They're very forward-thinking when the digital age hit. Mm -hmm. They were uh, one of the, I I think, one of the first ensembles to just be like, yeah, sure, release our tracks online. Yeah, here, we'll post our catalog online. We'll do this online. Whereas their friends across the river here in Minneapolis side, the Minnesota Orchestra, they were not so eager to embrace the digital age. And uh, SPCO kind of left them in the dust for a while, I think. for a few years there just because they were just like yes we want you to check us out they're also their tickets are some of the cheapest you'll find yeah it's unbelievable how cheap those you can go to some shows for like nine bucks and this is a grammy winning professional orchestra to the Minnesota Orchestra on, quote-unquote, our side of the river. <laughs> uh, Emily and I record in Minneapolis, and we both live in Minneapolis. So. Yep, yep. So uh, Minnesota Orchestra, oh my gosh, I can be driven to tears just thinking about how much I love Minnesota Orchestra. Not even kidding. And... When I used to work at a different public radio station, I got to spend a lot of time there with the musicians and with the music director, Osmo Venska. And I'll just my favorite times of my life, spending time over there. It's so amazing. So the music director right now of Minnesota Orchestra, as I just mentioned, is Osmo Venska, the conductor. And he's he's been with the orchestra since 2003 and will in the next year or so be be uh, making his exit, which is unfortunate, but he's been with us for such a long time, and it's just a tremendous gift. Osmo is from Finland. Before he came here, he was, well, he was a, a lot of things, but one of the things he did that brought him to international attention was he was the conductor for a symphony in Finland in the town called Lahti. And uh, so the Lahti Symphony, you can find unbelievable recordings with Osmo Venska leading that symphony of all kinds of great music as well. With Minnesota Orchestra, uh, he has been responsible for for just getting the orchestra to do some of the coolest things. They've made some great recordings. They've uh, recorded the whole Beethoven symphony cycle, so that's nine of Beethoven's symphonies. Um, they've recorded a number of Beethoven's piano concertos. Uh, right now, they're working on recording all of Mahler's symphonies, which that's wow. no small undertaking with how long and 
huge. Talk about needing a thousand musicians on stage, you know? So, and they've been around for over a hundred years, right? Yeah. 1903 was when, uh, the, uh, Minnesota orchestra started. And I neglected to say that SPCO has been around since 1959, by the way. So there's 61 this year. Minork, as we affectionately call them here, Minork has been around, as I mentioned, since 1903. And, you know, they've only had, they've had about a less than a dozen uh, music directors. So people come and they stay, which is really cool uh, to, to lead the, to the uh, lead the ensemble. Um, they also most recently won a Grammy in 2014, and that's for a recording they made in 2013 of two of the Sibelius symphonies, Jean Sibelius, a Finnish composer. So of course- As, as is Osmo. Uh, Osmo being from Finland, uh, he has a pretty close connection with the music of mm-hmm. Jean Sibelius. And- um, the other thing I love about Osmo Venska, and this isn't about him by any means, but uh, is that he's a clarinet player. He Many conductors, conductors just tend to be pianists. And so I love that And he's, composers, too. We were talking yeah, about composers this too. Um, in our last episode mm-hmm. um, about, you know, most of the time they can play the piano. And a lot yeah. of times compositions are drawn up for piano first and then not not all the time, of course, yeah. but like it's so a stepping I, stone. I saw that today too, and I was like, oh, I didn't know that about him. Like yeah. I knew he was a musician. Yeah, but he's I didn't a clarinet he player, was... and he still plays. He's a phenomenal clarinetist, and you can still hear him playing in uh, chamber groups and stuff uh, around. Uh, well, just around Minnesota Orchestra. They perform downtown Minneapolis at Orchestra Hall. They've been there since 1974. It was renovated in 2013, and it's a beautiful facility. Let's listen to some of that uh, Grammy-winning album with the Sibelius on it. So that recording has Sibelius's first and fourth symphonies on it. And we'll just listen to a little bit of the first one. It starts off, and I mean, it's so appropriate. The first symphony starts with a beautiful clarinet solo. So here we go. Very cool. And this was written by Sibelius in 1888 through 1889. The first time. Both orchestras in the times that we're having now with um, social distancing and the like are trying to do a lot more live performing and, again, opening kind of things digitally. And um, so you can visit both um, websites to find out more about that. Uh, Minork is doing live shows, but they're going to have a maximum, I can't remember, of how many musicians on stage, but only like 23 or something. So that's crazy. It seems like, from what I can tell, the majority of what SPCO will be performing live will also be way small groups, like maybe, you know, quartets, quintets. Um, And I would imagine probably keeping it to that, too, because how many people can you actually fit on stage? Yeah. So, um, but both seem to be adapting as best they can to, to the situation. I have written down, I see that you have prepped the third movement. I had the second and third movement, so it's interesting we both fell on the listening to the third, having the third movement in there. Yeah. Um, Do you mind if we... Not at all. So to me, this encompasses, like, it seems to me very rich and very Finnish and very northern and pastoral and I love the fact that not only we have our local orchestra playing this very talented but we have a director capable of trying to transmit obviously the cerebral energy that is Sibelius and what the music needs but also he knows firsthand 
a different type of pride or pastoral that, you know, here in the States or in Minnesota we don't have. So to bring that over and to have this synergy, like right now, is just divine. I think it's beautiful. So good. Just, I mean, I don't want to say kill me, because don't, but, you know, <laughs> make fun of me. Rabbits, like, running in the woods, and, like, and, like it's just, like, snow. thick with snow. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So what do you think of this keepsake cider besides you know we talked about the bruised fruit notion yeah what else are you tasting it's delicious and i'm tasting heaven in a glass and i wish everyone could experience this and understand like how delicious cider can be well i love that when he said you know everybody's invited because of course he means that metaphorically and and to some extent literally we know that he's got enough knowledge to be picking these apples at a low ph you know they're high enough acid that they're thwarting off certain bacteria he's filling up his tanks so they're not like left three quarters full and then bad bacteria grows like he's a smart guy with resources and know-how right at the same time you can tell that some things are welcome that are not welcome in other ciders like this character that is somewhat like and i don't say lack of consistency because every year medium tastes different than say their chestnut single orchard but every year the medium is just a the wild medium is just a little bit different because whether he's tweaking the type of apples or the fermentation is that the yeasts are going to be reacting in a different way, right? And so um, just like wine is different vintage in and vintage out, their bottlings are slightly just a little different. And I I love that about it. I love that you can taste that there are other things invited to the party, mm-hmm. as it were. Me too. To Minork, to the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, mm-hmm. and to Keepsake. Yeah. Thank you very much for being part of the show. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode, and you can support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and pours. Cha-ching! We're on Instagram at Scores and Pours, and that is where you can send us direct messages with any questions you have regarding wines, beers, spirits, and of course, classical music. Consider supporting the musicians that we featured today by buying their music. That's super helpful for them, especially right now. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott, our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc. <laughs>